Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. It's hot and muggy tonight in Los Angeles. It's about 9.30 and it's Wednesday. Earlier today, I walked over to the Los Angeles Archdiocese, which is located on Wilshire Boulevard. I interviewed Father Alexi Smith. Father Alexi Smith is the Director of Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs for the Los Angeles Archdiocese. A couple of weeks ago, I asked him if he'd be interested in doing an interview for a podcast, and he said he would. So today was the day. What you're about to hear is my interview with Father Alexi Smith, the Director of the Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs Office of the Los Angeles Archdiocese. I'm here today in downtown Los Angeles in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles speaking to Father Alexi Smith. And Father Alexi Smith is the interreligious... Well, Father Alexi Smith, maybe you could define what you do. I'm the uh, ecumenical and interreligious officer for the Archdiocese, which basically means that I direct, we'll just ignore that, okay. we do, I direct our Catholic Church's relations with all other faiths, both ecumenically, meaning with our fellow Christians, and interreligiously, meaning with our non-Christian brothers and sisters. Wow. So you're pretty busy then. Keeps me hopping, yeah. <laughs> Keeps me hopping. Now, uh, the, my, my, my first question to you uh, would be, uh, were you born a Catholic? I was born and raised a Catholic. I you was born and raised as a, a Roman Catholic. Okay. And then through a little period of uh, discernment, uh-huh. I discovered another aspect of Catholicism called Eastern Catholicism, or sometimes called Greek Catholicism. Okay. And that just fascinated me. I was intrigued by it. Ultimately um, experimented, went to a number of different Eastern Catholic or Greek Catholic parishes here in the Los Angeles area. Ultimately affiliated with one. Okay. And was a parishioner there for about 10 years. Hmm. before uh, entering the seminary. So okay. Priesthood is a second career for me. And, and well, uh, before we get into your career, what was it about the Orthodox Eastern, Eastern tradition that intrigued you? The, uh, other than, it, it, for me, it's, I, I guess if, if you're looking at a Protestant, you might have been born like an Episcopalian mm-hmm. or something and then mm-hmm. found out about the Lutherans and <laughs> said, wow, okay. Right. Yeah. So what was it about that tradition that that one that made you want to follow it or investigate it? A couple of things. Okay. Um, um, first of all, about this time is when the Roman Catholic Church was going through a lot of liturgical renewal, and so everything that I was accustomed to was being questioned. No, was liturgically. this in the 60s? And it was, uh, middle 60s, late... So Second Vatican Council? Second, right after the Second Vatican Council. Okay, right. and during that Second Vatican Council, one of the things was they were going to hold services in English rather than Latin? Different language now, the language okay. of the people, um, different style of music, uh, different approach to the sacred. Okay. Which, um, honestly, at that time, I found a little bit challenging. So you were more of a traditionalist? M- much more of a traditionalist, when it okay. came to things liturgical anyway. Okay. Uh, and so... Uh, in the Eastern Christianity, I certainly found that uh, sense of the reverent, mm. which uh, for a while mm-hmm. was lacking, in my opinion, in okay. Roman Catholic worship. And then secondly, perhaps more importantly, um, I found uh, Eastern Catholicism 
to be a, a way of life rather than a religion. Mm. Something that yeah. I saw people living, uh, making a great effort to live every day. Okay. Um, the, the, the liturgical calendar, uh, fasting periods, the, the joyful periods. The, uh, um, Eastern Christianity is meant to be lived, it's supposed to be a way of life. Not that Roman Catholicism was not at that mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. but let, can I give you a couple of examples? Please, yeah. Um, I'm a product of Roman Catholic schools. Okay. And again, now this is many, many years and ago. And is this in Los Angeles? In Los Angeles, Okay. Yeah. We were taught, for example, in the eight years of grammar school, we were taught a lot about Jesus, mm -hmm. but we were never taught to know Jesus. We were never taught to have a relationship, a spiritual relationship with him. Now, that would be the difference to you then between knowing and having... Yes, and, and I can know all about okay. you. Uh-huh. I know some things about you, Kusla. But That's I right. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we are... Until we create a relationship with each other. Precisely. Okay. And then, then that yeah. relationship uh, develops, blossoms. Okay. And, and then and there's then a, you true really, a, 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 a true connectedness. A then. true connectedness. So yes. you felt that uh, you, you weren't getting that in your Ro Roman Catholicism. No, I'm, I mean... And, and yet in the Greek Catholicism, relationship was emphasized? Absolutely emphasized. Okay. Okay. Absolutely emphasized. Interesting, yeah. And now, um, have you always been a priest? No. Okay. I, was, um, uh, I uh, always thought about being a priest from when I was in, I remember the, the nuns in grammar school used to tell me, uh, especially when I started being an altar server. Yeah. Uh, they said, oh, you look good on the altar. You should consider being a priest. Too. <laughs> and I remember that the uh, pastor of the, the church that I, uh, and school that I attended, uh, had a policy that uh, we didn't have junior high. We had uh, elementary school was first eighth grade. He used to take all the, the guys on a bus sometime during the eighth grade up to the high school seminary. In those days, we still had Catholic high school seminaries with the idea that he would equate you with that seminary and try to mm. entice you, I suppose, to you know following through and, and signing up there. I see. Well, I looked it up over and I said, well, it's nice and... Yes, I am thinking about priesthood, but no, thank you. I wasn't ready to leave home, you know, yeah. like a boarding school type thing. I wasn't yeah. interested in that. So I basically told him, thank you, Monsignor, but no, thank you. Okay. I went on to Catholic high school, and uh, also there I toyed with the idea of entering the seminary right after high school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, in our, my senior year, they asked us, any of you considering priesthood? I foolishly raised my hand. They put me on a little van, took me uh, to an, uh, another seminary to check that out. And again, it was nice, but it just didn't resonate. It didn't feel yeah. this is what I wanted. Okay. So I said, again, thank you, Father, but no thank you. Yeah. I went on to study in college, university. I studied at the University of Southern California. Oh, you did? Where my uh, field of studies was international relations. Wow. Never thinking that I would be using those uh, skills <laughs> in a little different way now for the, the church here. Exactly. Um, and, it, I mean, the thought was there, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really, um, I, I like to use the description of it was like a pilot light, you know, in a, in a gas range or something. Okay. It was flickering, but it wasn't blazing. Okay, you know? okay. So, in my last uh, year at SC, I needed to do something for some money. Mm -hmm. And I uh, looked through the LA Times classified section, and not knowing having a clue as to what I was looking for. And I remember seeing an ad that said students in very bold type, you know. 
And then in progressively smaller font, it said, um, every other evening, every other weekend, so such and such hours. Yeah. Uh, finally, at the bottom, in very small font, it said, Pierce Brothers Mortuary. <laughs> so I said, well, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained here. So I called them to see exactly what they wanted because yeah. you know, I thought, you know, I could do every other weekend, I could do every other night type of thing. What they were looking for basically was an attendant. But how did you feel about working with dead people? Well, it's, it's always I mean, been my... When I was an altar boy at uh -huh. the, the school there, yeah. couldn't tell you how many funerals I assisted at. So it was never, never... Okay, so it wasn't a big issue for you. It wasn't a big issue. Okay, I see. Uh, I see. In most ways. Because in some... In most for, ways. Because for some people, that would be uh, quite... Uh, Gross. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Or, or make them feel uncomfortable, Macabre, at least. Macabre, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I went, I interviewed... I, um, they wanted uh, what they termed an attendant, someone to answer the door, answer the phone. Mm -hmm. This was in the days before answering services and all these other things, which mm -hmm. they use now. Um, and if there was nothing going on, then it was an ideal place to study. Quiet. Yeah, quiet. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> banging around. Yeah. So um, I said, fine. I took the job. And then I did that for about a year. And during that year's time, I, on days off or when I didn't have class or something, I did other things around there, driving and other Did you things. ever get a chance to, to work with the corpses? Oh, yes. Oh, you did? Okay. I used to go and uh, what they used to make the first calls. When someone dies, you'd go to the place of death oh, yeah. and bring the body back and okay. all this other stuff. It certainly helped. Uh, um, never did much of the uh, technical embalming. I yeah. think you have to be licensed to do I, that. I would think so, yeah. Uh, but I did you know, like dressing and, and putting people in caskets and all that type of stuff. Now, let me ask you sort of a strange question, but when you went to pick up the bodies and, and the bodies were in the, in the mortuary, did you ever have the sense that, uh, that the soul was there or the soul had been reborn in heaven? Or did you have a sense that some energy was still there or had energy had left? I did think, any of those feelings I, I think because of my Catholic faith, yeah. uh, I often uh, thought that this was what was left behind, that the soul, the, the, the real life of the person uh -huh. had gone on. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what was left was the, the shell of the person. The shell, just the vehicle. The vehicle. On this, yeah. on this that housed. Plane. That housed. That housed everything. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, I did that for about a year. Wow. And at the end of my year, um, I was finishing my studies at SC. Yeah. Uh, they asked me, the, the funeral home people asked me, well, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I don't know because... This was at the time of the height of our involvement in Vietnam. We were oh, moving yes. to that uh, yes. privately here. Yes. And going to work for the government did not appeal to me okay, because so of Vietnam. So signing up? Uh, I had to sign up for the draft. You did? Yes. And, and did you have to take a physical? I, no. Did, uh, did. I did. In those days, if you were in college, you had to take an exam to show that you were progressing in college in order to keep your college deferment. Okay, so you had a college deferment. deferment right. Okay. But that would be ending. You know, that was going to end yeah. when I finished uh, um, school there. Uh -huh. So I, I did not. I elected not to go to work for the government. Okay. Uh, and uh, they asked me again, "What are you going to do?" I said, "I didn't know." They offered me a job, and I said, "Well, Beats looking for a job. Uh, I'll yeah. take it." And I said, "But I want you to know that this is certainly not what I deem my calling in life. You yes. know, and I'm, I'll be with you until I find something else." Okay. Well. And they accepted that. They made me a, gave, made me a director. And, and long story short, I, I worked my way up the corporate ladder. Mm -hmm. I was with them 15 years. 
Wow. And when I left, I was the vice president of the firm. Wow. Uh, had lots of wonderful, uh, was making some good bucks. I bet you were. Good bucks. Um, I, uh, Pierce Brothers in those days was a, a, the largest chain operation in Southern California here. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately today it's, you know, it's been bought and rebought and sold and divided up. Um, yeah. But in those days that was the firm. And um, I had a company car, months paid vacation, uh, secretary, expense account, all these w wonderful perks. And I thought, you know, that I was doing, um, I was pleased with the, the, the job and with what I was doing there, mm -hmm. but I didn't feel complete. I didn't feel okay. fulfilled. And so I used to uh, talk about this with some priest friends that I had met through the funeral home because we were, I mean, we had 22 locations, so I was sure. someplace all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and it actually was through them, through the funeral home, that I discovered Eastern Christianity. Hmm. Because I honestly, I didn't know anything about Eastern Catholicism okay. uh, until we started doing funerals in these places. And I uh, was introduced to that whole world through that job. Um, and so then all these priests that I got to know, I explained to them my spiritual dilemma, you know. And they all said the same thing, you know. You considered priesthood at one time. Um, and with all due respect to you, you're not getting any younger. What, um, if you're going to do this, you should go and at least apply, see whether they, they would accept you. Now, that's an interesting point that you bring up, because I know in some forms of Buddhism, uh, there, there are age limitations, that after a certain point, uh, you may not be qualified to be a monk or a monastic. Yes. Uh, uh, do they have that in same Catholicism Same thing as Catholicism. As well? yeah. Okay. I wasn't nearly uh, no. near the, the maximum age, but I, would. I was... <laughs> But I was uh, certainly above the minimum age, and there's a f at least a four-year uh, schooling period. Yeah. Well, well, what you know, and people ask me why did I become a monk, and I mm -hmm. sometimes say, well, you know, I, I don't really know. My my practice uh, gained a certain momentum and led me in a direction. It wasn't as intentional as it might seem to people. It, you know, it's just one thing led to the next, and all of a sudden. I'm going through the ordination process, but, <laughs> it, but, but I can resonate with that. Yeah, in sense, yeah. yeah. So, was there like uh, what was it about being a priest? Because you know, a lot of people who are going to be listening to this podcast are going to be wondering why would anybody want to be a monastic? What would lead them to give up? You know, having a wife, uh, a mortgage, car payments. I mean. Those things. <laughs> Some of the things you have on a parish level, and you I, still have to meet. I uh, bet, yes. The, the, I suppose yes. the wife you don't, but the, yes. the others you, you do. Yeah. Um, actually, I again, I always saw, in my own case, it was a response to what I perceived as a call from God okay. to serve his people in religious things. So it was truly a, a calling for you then? Yeah, a calling which I admittedly ignored. For a number okay. of years, didn't want to pick it up right away. Didn't want to, or didn't want to answer affirmatively. <laughs> exactly, anyway. yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, so what was the turning point? It sounds like now you you've worked your way up. You you you've seen the success in in the business world. Right. And it, to my ear, it sounds like you weren't totally fulfilled, even though you were successful. Exactly. I, I, and there was I a, look at there was a longing. There was something yeah. I didn't feel fully utilized, if you will, for okay. for. The total mm, what, what talents or what, and such yeah. that I had been given by God. 
not when use I love. use those two terms, what what I think of is like success is on the outside, and fulfillment's on the inside. Yes. And so a lot of people in L.A. have a lot of stuff, and you look at them and you say, wow, they're really successful. And yet on the inside they're empty. And I've seen people who've had little or nothing, and yet are are uh, satisfied and fulfilled and. Uh, living the life mm -hmm. they choose to live. Mm -hmm. So it, was that the sort of tension you were feeling, the sort of the outside, you you have all the entrapment uh, as well? Entrapment is also a good word. Okay, uh, of, of the lay life, and, and but that didn't do it. That wasn't... Exactly, it, it didn't do it. And okay. success also can be quite exterior. Yeah. Whereas uh, interiorly, I didn't feel satisfied. Yeah. I didn't feel fulfilled. There was something lacking. Yeah. And okay. that, that lacking then, uh, uh, I ultimately discovered, was in responding to what I perceived as his call mm -hmm. and to enter the seminary. And, in, I was, and they point blank told me that entering the seminary was no guarantee of ordination. Okay. And when you enter, it's a period of discernment. And you're not just academically prepared, you are... Uh, scrutinized spiritually to see whether this is really whether what you what you're responding to as a call is really in fact a call mm -hmm. um, or as I tell people now who come to me asking me to help them make a similar uh, discernment um, are you running to something or are you running away yeah. from something that's a good point so when you enter the seminary when you complete your course you don't you aren't ordained. You, you not automatically. You must petition. You must be you asked must petition. Okay. for that. And if the seminary authorities concur, uh -huh. and if the bishop concurs, then you are ordained. Oh, I see. So the mere fact that you go through four years of seminary yeah. doesn't guarantee anything. Okay. And when you're in seminary, now I, I, I know what our training is at our center, but when you're in seminary, are, are you... Um, what are some of the subjects you like? History of Catholicism, yeah. history of religion. Uh, what you do uh, in the program I uh, signed up for, it, you earn a Master of Divinity degree okay. and div. Okay. Okay. And um, and I had been out of school for 15 years, mm. so Hard just, to go back just, just just the thought of <laughs> uh, uh, writing papers, term papers, or uh, Exams, I panicked always on exams. I never could take exams well, yeah. still can't take exams well. I used to uh, get up at 2 in the morning mm -hmm. and study, cram, all the stuff that any college kid probably would do. You know, sure. well, that was me. Sure. Um, but I will give the, the guys that I was studying with credit. I was the oldest person there. But after about the, the first day, they kind of adopted me, and I was just one of the gang. Mm. And it was just a wonderful rapport that we had. Um, they were very helpful. And I was able to bring to them some life experience uh, to their to our discussions that they didn't have they as well. Have. So it was were you the only second career priest there? Initially, or priest to be. Initially, yes. Afterward, and now we find this more in yeah. the Catholic Church that more and more uh, uh, men applying for priesthood it is as a second career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what are some of the subjects you ask? Yeah. Um, um, church history, certainly. Um, uh, scripture. We make an in-depth study of the four Gospels, mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, selected texts from the Old Testament as well, um, pastoral counseling, mm. um, preaching. Mm -hmm. um, That's a skill, isn't it? That's a skill, yes. Yeah, a skill which many... Catholic priests apparently are criticized for not having, but uh, well. uh, that's, it's, 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 it's something that uh, one is called to develop. 
um, language. We had to study uh, a bit of Greek so that we could, mainly for scripture studies, mm-hmm. so that we could study the scriptures in their original language. Um, liturgy, um, mm-hmm. different types of different strands of theology. Did you study comparative religions? Interestingly, the only way we they even approached comparative religions in those days, uh-huh. and uh, we'll get into what we do now exactly. in a moment. But exactly. In those days, no. I mean, okay. we I did have a course, an elective course, mm. in um, cults. In cults. And some things were that we would term religions today were classified as cults. Now, did Buddhism fit into that? No. Okay. No. Interestingly, we never looked at anything okay. non-Christian. Because for a long time, Buddhism was looked at as a cult, yes. but I would imagine most new religions, and all religions were new at one time, were went from cult status to traditional Correct. status. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Today, in our seminaries, I, I'm proud to share with you that, for example, at St. John's Seminary here in Camarillo, uh-huh. for the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, there is a mandatory course for ecumenical and interreligious affairs mm. in which uh, students are required to at least acquaint themselves with the basic tenets of these other faiths. Uh-huh. And I, as the ecumenical and interreligious officer for the Archdiocese, am kind of a guest lecturer at that course. And I, I give them some practical ways of interacting with other faiths once they get out in the parishes. Yeah. I volunteer to... Uh, one of their requirements is that they attend a non-Catholic worship service. Mm. And some of our guys are, um, for one reason or another, a little bit intimidated, intimidated about going to um, Buddhist services or yeah. um, Muslim services, particularly. Yeah. That's very popular right now because of the whole world situation. So I often in, uh, facilitate their visit, and I will okay. go with them on, on Friday to the Friday services at mosques, mm. um, that type of thing. I've uh, also brought... Uh, some to Buddhist services. Wonderful. Yeah. So there's a, it's, it sounds to me like it's evolved uh, in the sense of community that in L.A. with however millions of people live here, um, we do have every religion represented Absolutely. here. Absolutely. And we can't turn our back on them or hide our head in the sand because they oftentimes become our next-door neighbor. So in order Or a member of your family will marry them. They, <laughs> that's true, too. <laughs> Just before so, you, you yeah. arrived today, uh, some yeah. priest called me and said that um, uh, one of the ladies in his parish just announced to him that she's going to get married and that the gentleman uh, she's going to marry is a Hindu. Mm. Well, he's never encountered that in his years of priesthood. And I said, well, welcome to the real world. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so a lot of challenges happening. Yes. So now I prefer to look at them as opportunities. Yes, I, I, I like that I, word I'm a little bit Buddhist there. I, I, I like that word yeah. better myself. So here we are now. You, you, you've done your four years, yes. and you've decided that uh, I'm going to go for priesthood, mm-hmm. that you want to get ordained. Mm-hmm. And did you approach everybody, and they said, we'd like to have you on board and be... Exactly. Okay. And um, is, is it a pretty intricate ceremony to become a priest? Um, the, uh, again, as a Greek Catholic and Eastern uh-huh. Catholic, our ordination ritual is different from the Roman Catholic. Okay. Roman Catholic is quite evolved, quite okay. an elaborate ritual. Um, ours is basically a regular Sunday liturgy mm. with uh, a little ceremony um, interspersed at the, uh, in the center of the liturgy, whereby uh, the priest is um, presented to the bishop uh, the priest-to-be is uh, presented to the bishop. Um, they make a public statement, a question 
to the people present, um, do you think he's worthy? Mm. And they hopefully respond, mm -hmm. uh, yes. And then um, the, um, these priests take you and walk you around the altar three times, in a sense, wedding you to the mm -hmm. altar. Wow. Okay. okay. It's a similar ceremony for weddings, only the bride and groom go, don't walk around the altar. They walk around a little table in front of the altar okay. uh, on which are placed the gospel book, the sayings of Jesus, uh -huh. and the cross symbolizing everything we believe he did for us. And their, their first steps as man and wife are a perfect orbit around the representatives of Christ. Yeah. With the idea of keeping Christ at the center of your life. Yeah. Priest, then the ordination, the idea of keeping the altar and everything that happens on the altar at the center of your life center as a priest. Okay. After that, then, you are assigned to a... Uh, that's basically the, the, the okay. only difference of any Sunday liturgy. Uh, and then you're vested. You're vested, uh, and I've witnessed the Buddhist ordinations yes. where they bring the robes. The same type of thing, they, they bring the robe. And okay. after each one, then the bishop takes it out and he says, Axios, meaning, is he worthy? Uh, and the people respond back, Axios, uh, yes, he's worthy. Wonderful. Uh, God help you if someone says, non-Axios, <laughs> then you, it's finished. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then um, you are assigned to a parish. Okay, now is there, in, in that tradition, is there a possibility of going to a monastery and being cloistered? If if you wished to be a monk, monk okay. yes, you would be a monk before you ordained a priest. I see. A friend of mine was just ordained, uh, who is a monk, okay. at one of our monasteries, our monastery out near Barstow. Okay. Uh, was just ordained a deacon, and which is a step towards priesthood. That's right. And he will be ordained a priest in October, I believe. He's a monk first. Uh huh. And now, as, as a priest, will serve that monastery as a priest. Okay. Will not be assigned elsewhere, okay. but will serve the monastery as a priest. Uh, something interesting came up at the first Monks in the West conference with Catholic yes, monks yeah. and Buddhist monks. Which together. is a wonderful idea, by the way. Yes, and the next one's coming up in October of this mm -hmm. year, which uh, should be good when we talk about uh, celibacy and, and living a uh, chaste life. Um, but one of the monks at the first Monks in the West conference said he did not want to become a priest because that would interfere with being a monk. Yes. And I thought that was fascinating because I didn't see the difference initially but but being a priest means you're really more in the world it seems to me and you you are called to do talks homilies you are called to do weddings you are called to do funerals and 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 if and but a monk i suppose is cloistered and his practice is to create a relationship with mm -hmm. god mm -hmm. to pray to meditate exactly okay and um some monks also would do spiritual direction, but mm -hmm. they would they would not leave the monastery to do that. The, 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 the adherents would come to them. Come, okay. okay, I see what you're saying. Um, I know a, a wonderful example of just what you're saying, okay. that where um, there was a small monastery, a, a Greek Catholic monastery in Ohio, I believe. Mm. And um, because of the shortage of priests now, the bishop there asked these monks, could you care for these two tiny parishes that are nearby and they agreed to do so mm. and they ended up spending more time as parish priests than they did monks yep. and observance of their monastic practices yep. and the monastery fell apart. Yeah. Yeah. I know another group of nuns, orthodox nuns, mm -hmm. who um, did much, the, the, sadly the same thing happened. They became, they were supporting themselves by sewing the, the vestments. Mm -hmm. uh, well, they got so involved in their sewing and selling of the vestments, uh, yeah. which were beautiful. I'm, I myself purchased some from them. Yeah. But they didn't 
they didn't follow the moderation enough mm. to, to be able to say it's our time for meditation now or it's time our prayer now yeah. and they allowed these things to interfere yeah. and now they disbanded mm-hmm. because they lost the mm. essence of what it means to be a monastic yes yes that's one of the that is very well put people ask me all the time uh, am I a monk I said well I'm, I'm a monk in the sense that of my ordination qualifies me but but my lifestyle I'm more uh, uh, a parish priest living in downtown Los yeah. Angeles yeah. Uh, the the centers open people come and go all the time we have 30 residents um, it now you're hardly in an isolated area I'm not an isolated yeah. area it's not quiet we as you know yes. we have uh, <laughs> fire engines and ambulances and helicopters 24/7 right and um, so and then some people say, but, being, but isn't being a monk sort of just like not caring about the world? Isn't it more important to be in the city and helping the people? I mean, they're not contributing anything to the world. Oh, on the contrary. As a monk, exactly. Now, what would you say to that? No, I would say on the contrary. Okay. I, I think um, monks, uh, monastics, whether male yeah. or female, um, have a special vocation and a special place in the world. I mean, you don't... I mean, well, I suppose some people do flee to these monasteries to flee the world. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you're you're entering into an idyllic uh, lifestyle. <laughs> no. I mean, even I mean, as a poor comparison, if you permit this, the seminary life. I mean, it was all male. Yeah. Um, and people, some of whom we wouldn't necessarily choose to be living with. Yeah. Um, but because of the the circumstances. You are called to interact with them. Mm-hmm. And you are called to live with them. And find a way to live and with them. And find a way to live with them. Yeah. And that is not always easy. No. And no. I, I often tell people um, in the Catholic world, oh, these the monks and the nuns are so holy and all this other stuff. I said, well, you don't live with them. You don't understand that they face the same trials, mm-hmm. the same, where um, um, we would use temptations. Yeah. Um, they have to deal with the same desires that mm-hmm. you and I have, uh, and, I think and, and and they do that at, uh, in a specialized setting, a rarefied yeah. setting, yeah. which I think only enhances the the, the uh, it, tribulation it, rather than just it magnifies. magnifies it, I suppose yeah. that that inner yes. sense of who you are and who you want to be yeah. and who you don't want to be, yeah. and so that struggle, that internal struggle, is there's no place to escape if you're in the monastery. Well, exactly. I. Uh, for a while, was a kind of a spiritual director to mm. a couple of monks at a fledgling monastery. Now, why they thought they needed to come to someone outside the monastery for a spiritual direction, I never did quite figure out. <laughs> um, but uh, they did. And uh, listening to them talk, I mean, the same struggles as anybody else, but in this kind of rarefied atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the, uh, in a joking way, a humorous way, I say, well, you know, a, a woman or man who's who's a monastic uh, uh, and, and apart from the world uh, isn't killing, isn't stealing, isn't indulging in sexual misconduct, isn't lying, isn't consuming intoxicants. So they're not creating any more problems in the world. You got to give them that. But but more importantly, I think for me, what monasticism does, it gives people an option. That if there weren't monastics in the world, we they it it wouldn't happen. That just having one allows somebody to say, "I'm drawn to that. That's my calling. 
I want to explore who I am. I want to explore my relationship, if I guess if you're Christian, to God. Or if you're a Buddhist, my relationship, am I really empty? Is that the ultimate exactly. reality for me? Exactly. And, and the everyday world that I live in, I am so busy with uh, websites and newsletters and and volunteering community service and things like that, that oftentimes, as you pointed out, your own practice starts to suffer unless you can find that sort of middle place. You have to be disciplined to find that. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, I uh, have the profoundest respect for uh, Venerable Pinanda mm-hmm. and uh, Bhante Chao Chu here in Los Angeles, Yes. Uh, who are, at least from an outsider's point of view, doing Herculean efforts to aid in the tsunami relief in oh, their, yeah. their native Sri Lanka now. Well, that's got to take a lot of effort, yeah. a lot of travel yeah. uh, and such. Um, you know, same thing with the, the monastic that Sri Lai mm-hmm. or Wat Thai and the other monasteries around here. That's right. They, they're, they're, I admire them for the, 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 their efforts. Um, I, I only hope that they retain... The, the core, what what we would perceive as their calling to be, yes, while yeah. doing that. Sometimes people ask me if if I'm going to get enlightened in this lifetime, and I say, uh, probably not. I have too much to do. <laughs> <laughs> but next lifetime, yeah. maybe next time. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's too many people suffering, you know. Yes. And they yeah. and that's 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 the thing, I suppose, you know. Uh, see, but there, you, there's a, you see that clearly. Yeah, there's a resonance there with the idea yeah. of suffering, yeah, you right, know. Um, between Catholicism and, and Buddhism, because um, I remember this one lady in, in the parish where I served. She used to come up to me all the time and said, "Well, Jesus just wants us to suffer." And I said, "I don't think so." <laughs> I mean, Jesus said, "I came that you might have life and have it abundantly." Yeah. Uh, the suffering is there, uh-huh. and it's what we do with the suffering yeah. and how we we deal with the suffering. Yep. But I don't think that Jesus wants us to go around. Uh, let me ask suffering all the time. Let me ask you. I, I asked uh, uh, another Catholic priest this this question, and I was surprised at the answer. And uh, I said to him, "Can you have Catholicism without suffering?" And he said, "No." Mm. Yeah, I know most priests and, would answer that way. And I thought that was an interesting yeah. answer. And and then some people say to me, "But but can't something be learned from suffering? Yeah. Isn't suffering good?" at a certain level. Now, as a Buddhist, I would have to come to the conclusion that suffering is never good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that our whole focus as a Buddhist is to end suffering. And ironically, exactly. ironically, I, I, in a, in a, again, my sense of humor is a bit odd, but ironically, <laughs> if, if Buddhists are successful in ending suffering in the world, would that mean the end of Catholicism? No. Good. I, so I don't have to feel guilty about wanting to end suffering. Did Buddhists feel guilty? I thought that was a Catholic. <laughs> I think it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be. Uh, so suffering. back to the thing about suffering. Yeah. Can if can you have Catholicism without suffering? I think it depends on how you define suffering. Okay. Okay. Do you have a definition for suffering? Um, I think suffering exists. Things happen that okay. cause people to suffer. Okay. Um, and again, Jesus taught us a way of life mm-hmm. and how to cope with and how to deal with life and its suffering. Um, I don't agree with some of those, like the lady in the parish who said that Jesus wants us to suffer. I don't yeah. believe uh, 
with all due respect to my Catholic uh, brothers and sisters in certain monastic traditions who inflict suffering upon themselves. Mm. I don't agree with that at all. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. But I do think he's calling us to deal with the reality of suffering that we often cause, not only ourselves, but others in the world. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Good. Uh, that, well, thank you for giving me your answer. Sure. Because I... Uh, uh, and when I, when I think of Jesus, I, I think of the way he ended his life. Well, even, even before that, I want to say, when I walk into a Catholic church and I see the cross... Mm-hmm. And I walk into a Buddhist temple and I see the Buddha. It's fascinating to me to see the dichotomy of those two images. Oh, absolutely. Because one is, for me, exemplifies peace. And, and, and the other one exemplifies suffering. Mm-hmm. That he suffered on the cross. I, that, those might be Christian words, I don't know. No, very for Christian. all humankind. Yes. But it's also interesting in how one portrays that image of the cross. For okay. example, in... Roman Catholicism, it's quite mm, gory, a la mm-hmm. Mel Gibson, yeah. okay, in <laughs> The Passion of the Christ. But in Eastern Christianity, the, um, the, the cross is, and Christ on the cross is m- more betrayed. I mean, certainly he's dead on mm-hmm. the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm. But it's kind of a voluntary acceptance which is glorified there. In fact, often the caption on icons, I don't have one here of the cross... Um, but it'll say the king of glory and the idea of this glory is that he voluntarily accepts this suffering mm-hmm. uh, for us but we don't uh, Eastern Christians don't uh, we don't minimize the physical suffering that Jesus endured during his passion and death mm, but we don't regale in it either yeah. we don't see those images bloodied images of Christ to the extent that you do in, in certain Roman Catholic churches okay now, right now we've been talking about suffering, and we have that in common. We have something to talk about. And I know oh, yes. in the Buddhist-Catholic dialogue here in Los Angeles, which started, if I'm not mistaken, in 1989. Uh, I believe that's the correct name. Right? Monsignor Royal Vatican, Vatican yeah. and Reverend Dr. Ratnasara mm-hmm. came together. And, and I've been a member of it for a while now and uh, a few years. And what I find interesting is how much we have in common and then how many times we don't have something in common and yet it's okay that we're able to accept the differences and honor the similarities. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so, so suffering we definitely have in common. I mean, it's a human condition mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and a, a Catholic might approach it this way and a Buddhist might approach it that way. What are, what are some of the other things that, that you've found in Buddhist-Catholic well, dialogue that are similar? I think there's several things. I okay. think certainly, I mean, we've alluded to the monastic life. Yes. Okay. Uh, certainly, Catholics have a well-established tradition of monastic life, and as, as do the Buddhists. In fact, just before you arrived, I was telling the nun in the office next door mm-hmm. that a Buddhist monk was coming, and we were going to be talking uh, mm-hmm. together like this, and she looked at me very questioningly. She said, they have monks? I said, sister, of course they have monks. And she said, oh, I have a lot to learn. I said, yes, all of our Catholic people have a lot to learn about uh, our brothers and sisters in the uh, Buddhist world because there are so many, as you said, so many similarities there. Um, The idea of uh, prayer, Mm -hmm. uh, although it might be a different concept of prayer, but the idea of the chanting. Yeah. I've attended recently the 100 bow ceremony. Yes. Uh, it was fascinating. Yes. Just fascinating because 
the idea of prayer being not just something you do mentally. Um, and again, I, I realize I'm equating that with prayer, which might not, that might not be the term you would use for I that. But, I um, but n- that's very Eastern Christian. Mm-hmm. Do you, prayer is something where the whole person prays. So right. you do the, the prostrations yes, right. uh, coupled with the chant. Uh-huh. That's our Lenten observance. We do a lot of that during Lent. Wow. Chanting and physical prostrations at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't we both use incense? Do you have incense? Incense, of course. Uh, yeah. cl- the air is blue with incense yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, profound respect for life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably many of our Catholic people don't know that about Buddhists. Yeah. Uh, sadly, uh, they th- they think of um, well. I suppose that th- there are people in both uh, faith yeah. traditions that would. Um, counter that people like the Buddhist monks who emulated themselves oh, yes. in Vietnam, in Vietnam you know, yeah. uh, certainly yeah. um, Catholics who have done some things like that as well. Well, I, when, I, when I when I think about that, what I see is the is the political component Absolutely. that that they weren't necessarily burning themselves because they were Buddhist, but they were oh, making no, a statement about protest. the political Absolutely. statements and Catholicism. Catholics have been involved in. Um, political statements for a long time and the rights of people. Yes. Uh, and uh, most recently, the immigration issues here in yes, Los Angeles. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the Catholic worker in yes, downtown absolutely. Los Angeles, you know, feeding and uh, absolutely. housing people. Yeah. Yeah. I also see the um, similarity there with the use of material goods to convey spiritual realities. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you mentioned it. incense, exactly. but I mean flowers, yeah. uh, offering of fruit, candles, yeah. Yeah. things like this. Yeah. Um, those, I mean, Catholics believe that through these material uh, symbols, divine grace or the life of God is conveyed to us. Mm-hmm. The water in baptism, mm-hmm. the, the oil at the uh, confirmation, some of the bread and the wine at the, the Mass. Yeah. These are all material substances that are used uh, to convey divine graces. Um, For me, a major aspect, which you alluded to earlier, uh, uh, is Second Vatican Council where Nostra Aetate, the Catholics have said that Buddhism is okay. Now, that's an amazing document, because when I look at my Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, they don't have a central authority that, that has ever said Buddhism is okay. Exactly. <laughs> They're not quite sure what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the Catholics, I must say, I always feel comfortable, and I've been invited to speak at Catholic high schools. Yes. And you and I have been on panels. Yes, that. we yeah. have. And, and uh, there, is a, there is an openness about that and, and, and acceptance about that, acceptance of the diversity. Yeah. And I think the Catholics, since the Second Vatican Council, uh, are really almost cutting edge in this sort of unity community you know, perspective. Yeah. I like that term, cutting edge, because I think we, we are there. Um, Nostra Aetate, the decree on, which governs our Catholic relations with non-Christian faiths, um, 41 years ago, yes. um, really revolutionized, you're quite correct, uh, revolutionized the way we view non-Christian faiths. And before that, we were not so very open. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to be honest here. Mm-hmm. Um, but that document clearly states that... Um, there is truth in the non-Christian faiths. Yeah. Yeah. And although our our beliefs may vary um, widely on on some in some areas, mm-hmm. still there those other faiths reflect that ray of truth 
with a capital T that we define as Christ. Yes. And that's a major statement. You're absolutely right. A major statement. Mm -hmm. And Buddhism is one of the four religions specifically mentioned in that document. The yes. other ones being Ju uh, Judaism, Islam, and Hinduism. And Hinduism, yes. yes. And for me, when I found out about that document and, thought, and found out about the Second Vatican Council, not being Catholic, it wasn't on my radar. Um, <laughs> not sure it was on the radar of the Catholic Church either. <laughs> I, I was impressed with the fact that um, Catholicism is not as dogmatic as some people might think, that it is an evolving religion, perhaps, in my perspective, mm -hmm. that it, it's not stuck in the mud, it's, it's, it's growing in its worldview in a very special way. Certainly the Second Vatican Council emphasized that dramatically. Yeah. I mean, if it, I, I, I've forgotten how many conciliar documents were issued, but um, the church and the world um, regulating our, our, our relations not only with other faiths, but with social justice issues, um, changes in uh, the way we view things. I like your analogy of being stuck in the mud. Um, Things such as um, the death penalty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, not all of our Catholic people. I mean, that's forty some years ago now. Not all of them have embraced these teachings, and it's a it's no. a constant uh, opportunity yes. uh, for us uh, and challenge to continually confront our people. But yes, in a real way, you've given every Catholic an option they didn't have before. Yes. Wouldn't you consider yes. it to be that? Yeah. That if, if they can still find services in Latin, but if they want English... Not many here, but you can, yes. You have to look hard, mm -hmm. but if you want English, you got that. Uh, apparently, you can eat meat on Friday. And not, oh, yeah. And yeah. yeah. That, that was a, a discipline which, um, yeah. you know, again, that was something... Well, when I was growing up, one of my schoolmates in grade school thing. was a Catholic, yeah. and yeah. they always had fish on Friday. Yes. And, and that was something I could never figure out. And then one day he said, well, we don't have to have fish anymore on Friday. And I'm going, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, but, that's something mostly misunderstood by our own Catholic people. The, the, yeah. the, the discipline of eating fish on Friday, or, or rather, the discipline of not eating meat on Friday, okay. which most people interpreted meaning you had to eat fish. People, that was long before people became vegetarian conscious okay. And, okay. And, and could eat any number of vegetarian meals and not made with meat, yeah. uh, was, was a reminder of what uh, Christ endured for us in our mm -hmm. faith uh, mm -hmm. on the cross on a Friday, on Good Friday. Mm -hmm. And so it was, not, it was a call to some form of penance. I see. Okay. Well, I mean, today's society, with the ever-increasing number of people who are vegetarian, yeah. What kind of a penance is it? Not it might be more of a penance if you had to eat a T-bone steak or something. Exactly. You know, on that exactly. Um, Good point. But also, people missed the whole boat there because they were called if you didn't do some other form of penance mm -hmm. on Friday, mm -hmm. then you were still you're still asked then to refrain from eating meat. Mm. Most people have forgotten that second aspect. They just said, yeah. as your friend said, oh, we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah. But they conveniently forgot the the injunction there. Okay. Yeah. We won't limit it to dietary things, which are really symbolic anyway. Yes, let's, let's look at something more real. Yeah. Well, and as, as you know, in Buddhism, we have those dietary restrictions Precisely. as well. Precisely, yeah. And, and it's a form of practice. Yes. In this thing, yeah. yeah. This is a practice. It is a practice, yeah. 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 
Fascinating. Absolutely. So, since you've been with the Buddhist-Catholic dialogue, how do you see um, the Buddhist-Catholic relationship in Los Angeles? Do you see it as being healthy? Oh, uh, yeah. Do the Catholics come to the aid of the Buddhists and the Buddhists come to the aid of the Catholics? If, if, a, if a church is being built or a temple is being built, I know with Shilai Temple there was... Uh, some issues about uh, do we need a Buddhist temple in our community? And the Catholics stepped up and said, and uh, yes, it's important to have a Buddhist temple. And we, we recently did this again. Really? You, may, you may not know this. There was okay. a group of uh, nuns whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, but they're in... Are they Buddhist nuns? Buddhist nuns. Okay. Rose, Rosemead, maybe? Rosemead, okay. Um, trying to build a small retreat center and convent. Okay. And uh, unfortunately ran into a great deal of opposition from some very fundamentalist Christians. Mm -hmm. So th these nuns approached us at the Interreligious Council, and I have until yesterday been president for five years of the Interreligious Council. Congratulations. Now I'm uh, no longer president, but I'm still going to be active there. Okay. And they came and uh, asked if we could try to arbitrate that. And so I, as chair... Uh, of the Interreligious Council as president, offered to do so not only in that capacity, but also as the ecumenical and interreligious officer for the Archdiocese. I contacted, I listened to the nuns, I got, I was assured and uh, investigated and found that they had in fact followed all of the County of Los Angeles building codes and got all the, all the ducks were in order, all the permits were there. They just didn't have the, the final one because there was such opposition mm -hmm. to them. So I, I tried to contact the, um, this very fundamentalist Christian uh, denomination. Um, one time I got through to someone, but when I, was, I told them who I was and why I was calling, then they hung up. No kidding. And subsequent calls were never returned. Mm -hmm. um, so I put a request in writing to them and uh, had it uh, certified mail so that I at least would know that they would, you know, return the card type of thing so that I know that they got it. I got the card back. I never heard from them. Wow. Never heard from them. So I said, well, you're just not interested. Yeah. So then I, I, I reported this back to the Interreligious Council and I told them that, you know, obviously we can't arbitrate something here if there's only one side. And so they voted then that some people would go to the Planning Commission on behalf of the nuns and I as the chair was elected to, to go. And I did so, again, telling them I'm going, but just not as the chair of the IRC, but also as the interreligious officer for the Archdiocese. And so I went, and it was, uh, honestly, uh, that was a horrendous experience. Mm. The, the way that uh, the tension in that room that day was absolutely palpable. Mm. Um, and these are from people who supposedly share a belief in Christ, yeah. the same person that I believe in. Yeah. Um, but they knew why I was there, and they knew that I was supporting these Buddhist nuns, and it was just terrible, mm -hmm. just terrible. Um, but I went and I uh, then testified, and I told them, you know, I, I checked with our parish in the area to see whether the parish has any objection uh, whatsoever, and I was assured by the pastor, absolutely not, absolutely not. So I'm just standing here to tell you that the Archdiocese of Los Angeles not only has no objection, but would encourage yeah. uh, the building of this temple. I mean, uh, we have a, a number of churches of our own that uh, we run into problems trying to build these days. 
Um, so, you know, we're just standing by our, our Buddhist nuns, friends here. Mm -hmm. uh, well, ultimately, after a whole day of testimony and really uh, silly arguments from the other side, um, I'm going to share one of those silly arguments. They said, well, Buddhists use a lot of incense in their services. The incense will pollute the air. Wow. And so I said, said to I mean, have you breathed the air in that part of Los Angeles? Mm -hmm. you know, the incense of nothing would assist the quality, air quality, <laughs> rather than uh, aid to the pollution. <laughs> a lot of silly arguments yeah. like that. And uh, fortunately, then, the, the uh, city planning commissioners saw through what was happening, and they approved this. Oh, good. And um, we are, in the archdiocese, are prepared to do that. Yeah. Uh, and we'll do that again, should that, that you know, that contingency arise. Um, I, th I think, back to your original question, that we have a very healthy relationship with okay. a number of Buddhist communities here. Yeah. We have uh, not only our Buddhist-Catholic dialogue, but this last year especially, we've tried to involve uh, our Catholic teachers in high schools, mm. particularly, in the whole realm of interreligious uh, thinking. Mm -hmm. We, um, and for the first time ever, as, par as part of one of their in-service days, um, I was asked to put together an interfaith prayer service. Wow. Which we did. And it was in celebration of Nostra Aetate. Yeah. So I said, well, um, I said, well, who will you, you bring? And I said, well, what? let's stick with the religions in Nostra Aetate. So okay. I brought a rabbi, I brought an imam, I brought a Hindu nun, and I brought some monastic from Shilai, the oh, Buddhist yeah. temple. And uh, they chanted as part of the, the service there. And then afterwards, they were, uh, the participants in the service were invited to lunch uh, with our Catholic teachers. And we, um, we almost pulled that off. I had asked for vegetarian meals, but uh, some people don't understand vegetarian means more than just not, uh, you know. Yeah. So, but we got something for them anyway. Good. And we split them up. We, we um, like the, the, there were three monastics from Shilai. Mm -hmm. They did not sit together. They sat at three different tables with okay. our teachers and had just a wonderful reaction okay. and interaction. So much so now that um, many of our Catholic teachers in the high school, because we also have uh, world religions courses in our Catholic oh, yes. high school, yeah. and now several of them are asking for this next year that uh, we come to their schools and do the similar thing there. Wonderful. So I, I think these are learning experiences. We did the same thing out at Notre Dame High School out in Sherman Oaks as part of their 40th anniversary mm -hmm. uh, this last year. We had the uh, same usual suspects, as I say, you know. Yeah. And But it's a wonderful learning opportunity for kids. You could have heard uh, the, the a pin drop in that whole gymnasium as uh, speaker after speaker from these various non-Christian faiths and some of our fellow Christians as well got up to speak and to share with the students there mm -hmm. um, what it is they believe in and what they don't believe in, mm -hmm. especially in mm -hmm. the case of Islam. Yeah. It's just a wonderful learning experience. Forty f years ago, never would have happened. Yeah. And I think that we have to uh, re not rest on our laurels here, mm -hmm. Um, but continue this type of wonderful interaction with all different communities, in particular the, the Buddhist community, because they are um, share so many things with us. Yeah.
um, we were very pleased a couple of years ago now, is it, when we had the co-sponsored that Seventh International Congress oh, yes. on Buddhist Christian Studies. At Loyola Marymount University. At Loyola Marymount. Yeah. And we had that Buddhist Christian prayer service in our cathedral. Yes, yes. Um, first ever uh, type of thing, at least in a Catholic setting here in the Archdiocese. It was a wonderful opportunity mm-hmm. to show that we can engage in such evenings together, even though we come from diverse uh, thoughts when it comes to prayer and such. That's true, but we all uh, are members of the human kind. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. How do you how do you see um, the new pope and interreligious dialogue? Do you have any thoughts on that? Y- yes, actually. Um, you know, I, I think that um, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth is uh, uh, showing himself to be truly someone that's interested and wishes to foster ecumenical first and probably interreligious dialogues uh, secondarily. He's, mm-hmm. he's, uh, his first major uh, homily or, or talk after his election to the papacy, he stressed and took he said as his personal goal the reunification of the body of Christ. And what he meant by that, that all Christians should somehow be united into one body rather than fractured into all these denominations that we are today. Mm-hmm. I think that's very good. Yeah. I, I think we have to define what that unity would be. Sure. Um, but I think that uh, he's, he's certainly building on the work of his beloved predecessor, mm-hmm. John Paul II. Interreligiously, uh, Pope Benedict is probably a less, uh, lesser known what his real thoughts are mm-hmm. there. But I've been very pleased so far. Uh, his first journey outside of the... Uh, Italy, mm-hmm. outside of the Vatican, well, probably not outside of the Vatican, certainly outside of Italy, when he went to the World Youth Day uh, Conference in Cologne, mm-hmm. he went to the Jewish synagogue mm-hmm. uh, for a German pope, mm-hmm. yes. he's ethnically German, yes, he is. To, to be speaking in that particular synagogue in Cologne, which was so devastated. And, and it's a strong message, isn't it? Strong message, yeah. 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 He also m- met with uh, representatives of the Islamic faith while there. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that you will find that in regard to the Muslims, uh, Pope Benedict is going to be looking for a little bit more reciprocity. And by that I mean, we are championing your rights in the West. And we'll be looking to you to championing Christian and other churches, other faiths' rights in traditionally Muslim lands. Mm-hmm. He's, he's, in fact, did say that as much yeah. recently. Um, I know that there have been uh, representatives of, of Buddhists and Hindus and other faiths uh, were present at his uh, inauguration as Pope, and he uh, warmly welcomed them and received them. Mm-hmm. Um, he has changed the, the Vatican structure a bit when it comes to uh, interfaith relations. It's no longer a, I suppose the equivalent would be like in a presidential system that it's not a cabinet post okay. anymore. Okay. And he's merged two positions together, culture and interfaith, because he sees um, a lot of interfaith endeavors related culturally as well. Yeah, there's a linking. There there's goes certainly a linking there. Yeah, and I see that too. That's where he's at right now. And he's, okay. he's indicated this for a while, it will mm-hmm. be this way. And so I don't know whether that will once again be two separate cabinet positions or okay. whether they will be merged together. But there is a definite link to faith and culture. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think so, too. 
So you so you're optimistic then about Oh, the absolutely optimistic. And interreligious dialogue. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Wonderful. Well, I, I don't see I mean all those naysayers say, oh, I mean the day that Benedict was elected yeah. the phone, I think it's ringing now. You should have heard it then. <laughs> you know, oh, what are you going to do? And all this. Let's give the man a chance. Yeah. Give the man a chance. Um, if you'll permit the Please. analogy. Oh, um, yeah. uh, he was for 26 years, 20-some years anyway, um, the equivalent of the police oh. chief okay. of the Catholic Church. Okay? okay. You're a police chaplain, so you know yep. what that means. I know what that means, yeah. Now he's in a different position. He is yeah. maybe mayor. You know, it's a different role now. It is. And allows him to be more of himself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, and I think we see that coming out. Yeah. We, we, we from Vatican watchers, as they say, um, have reported to that the crowds of people that are going to the Vatican are equal to those that went with John Paul II. And they're coming. People went to see John Paul II. He was so, especially in his earlier years, was so vigorous and so on animated and, mm-hmm. and, and such. Um, people now are going to listen to Benedict yeah. because he writes his own material. There's a whole, a whole, I suppose, unemployment took a uh, one on the up in the Vatican because all those speech writers that used to write the stuff for John Paul II are suddenly unemployed because yeah. Benedict writes his own sermons. Wow. Interesting. And interesting. Yeah, he's, a, he's a great, I, great theologian. Yeah. And, and I think a great human being. That's that's what I heard when uh, when he was made pope. That what I heard was, he's not going to have to go from being a scholar only to a pastor as well. Exactly. And that transition from the police chief to the mayor. Uh, it, uh, so you think he can make it? You think he oh, can yes. make the transition? Yes, I think so. Okay. I think we see that now. Yeah. Um, he's. Uh, I was recently in Turkey on an interfaith uh, endeavor, and he's going to be going to Turkey in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, in July, he's going to uh, Spain to the World Family Conference, continuing to support the idea of families. Now, I, I know that the visit to Spain was in keeping a commitment that John Paul II had made mm-hmm. prior to his death. I'm not so sure about the, the visit to Turkey, whether that's something he's taking on himself, the idea of meeting with uh, His All Holiness, the Ecumenical Patriarch from the, from the Orthodox Church, yeah. an idea of working for unity there. Wonderful. But I think uh, these are all positive signs. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. And, and I am uh, uh, very confident. Good. And very uh, pleased. Wonderful. Well, Father Alexi, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I want to publicly thank you for sharing with me your thoughts and feelings. And... Uh, and I've learned a lot today, and I really appreciate you allowing me to uh, come by and say hello and have this discussion. Anytime. Good. Well, yeah. until the next time. Then. Until the next time. Okay. Peace. Peace to you. Well, that's it. That was my interview with Father Alexi Smith, the director of the Ecumenical and Interreligious Affairs Office of the Los Angeles Archdiocese. I hope you found it interesting, and I hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. If you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala, K-U-S-A-L-A, at urbandharma.org. Well, until next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free 
from suffering.